Tonight I want to speak to you about freedom of the will. My title is Defending Free Will Against Theological Giants. That's my title. Defending Free Will Against Theological Giants. Um, the title of the book is Free Will Revisited, a respectful, emphasize the word respectful, please, a respectful response to Luther, Calvin, and Edwards. <clears throat> so you know who I mean by theological giants, although I'll say another word about them in a moment. <clears throat> um, tonight we're going to deal with that. Some of you have the earlier book of mine entitled Grace, Faith, Free Will. In that particular book, I dealt with the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism in the doctrines of salvation, but I did not defend the concept of free will in that particular book. In this book, I do. The concept of free will itself, which is very much under attack. Uh, and uh, so that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Before... I defend it, however, I've got to define it. Uh, it's hard to defend something when you don't know what you're defending. So I want to begin with a brief discussion, definition of what free will means and some of the implications of that. What is free will? What's at stake when we're talking about freedom of the will? Do we have free will? So first of all, let's talk about the word will. What does it mean to have a will? Now, a will is not a thing. It's not a separate substance. If you say that a person has a will, that's not quite the same thing as saying that a person has a football in his hand or these days a basketball. Uh, it's not even the same as saying that a person has a body or a soul uh, or a spirit. A will is not a thing. It's a way of functioning. It's a capacity or an ability to act in certain ways. So start with that. That's not a definition, but it's a starting point. This also isn't a definition, but I want to say a little bit more about the word will because it's closely associated with some other words uh, like purpose or intention or decision. To say that a person has a will is to say that persons experience purposes, that they consciously intend things, that they make decisions. Now, I want to emphasize that only persons have wills. Machines don't have wills. They don't consciously adopt purposes. They don't intend to accomplish certain things. They don't make any decisions. Now, I know, I know, don't, don't fuss at me. I realize that we say things like they do. We talk like they have do those things. We, we, we say, for instance, well, my computer thinks that uh, after a period, I want the next word to begin with a capital letter because my computer does think that, you know. And, and so we say that. Forget it. That's only a way of talking. Computers don't think at all. They don't have purposes. 
They only do what they are programmed to do by people who do think. Persons think. Persons have purposes. Machines don't think. Machines just do what they are programmed to do by the people who have those purposes and make those decisions. They, um, they, they, their only purpose is the purpose of the designer and the user of the machine. So um, whatever your machines do, if it's your computer or your iPhone or your automobile or your washing machine, they only do what the persons who design them to do those things and the users use them to do. Okay, now, God made us with wills. And I say that to, then to say this, a will is a constitutional capacity. It's a capacity, a way of functioning, but it's constitutional. That is, it's essential to your very nature because God made you as a person with a will. Uh, and so that's what I mean when I say it's a constitutional capacity. <clears throat> All right, now, you need to understand that if you're going to say that a person has a will, you're already talking about the ability to choose, to decide. If you look the word up, the word will, in your dictionary, if it's anything like mine, it will say that the word will right by itself. You don't need any modifier. You don't even need the word free in front of it. The word will all by itself means, and this is what my dictionary says, quote, the power of making a reasoned choice or decision. That's the definition of the word will. So if you have a will, you have the power of choice. And that's what free will means, that you have the power of choice. In other words, now here's my definition that I've been working to. Free will is a way of saying that a person is capable of making decisions or choices. Now that means that a person can choose between two or more alternatives as long as that person understands enough to know what the alternatives are. That's really the only requirement. Um, you came in this room tonight. You decided where you were going to sit, right? And with all your heart, you know good and well, you could have chosen to sit somewhere else in the room. That's free will. That's really what it means. Now, some people say you couldn't have decided anything different from what you decided, and that's what brings us to the main point here. So now I'm ready to defend free will, having defined it in that regard. So why is this important? Why does free will need defending? In other words, what's at stake when we're talking about free will? Well, the reason we need to defend it is because some people deny it. That includes some great theologians who have denied the freedom of the will. But before we get to the theologians, let me say this. Some people who aren't theologians deny 
free will. There are lots of notable, intelligent, well-informed people who have been influenced by science and its successes who believe that everything that happens in this world is the necessary, notice the word necessary, the necessary result of what caused it. In other words, they say everything that happens, and everything means everything, it's a cause-effect relationship. The choice you made, that you thought you made to sit where you're sitting, was the effect of a cause. And that cause, in turn, was the effect of a prior cause. And that cause was the effect of a prior cause, and you can go back into infinity with that, because in their thinking, those who are absolutely sold out to natural science, in their thinking, everything that happens all the time is the effect of a cause. We live in a cause-effect universe. Every action in the world, and that includes every choice you make, whether to sit where you sat or to put on whatever clothes you put on tonight or to become a Christian or to reject Jesus, every choice you make has to be the choice you make. It can't be anything else. Now, there are lots of very important people in the world who think that, who aren't theologians, by the way. Uh, a lot of people hold that view. They say that you only think you're free to choose between one thing or another. But the whole vast world, including the human beings who occupy it, is one big machine. And you and I are simply cogs in the machine. A lot of people really believe that. You heard about Stephen Hawking's death? Stephen Hawking thinks that, thought that. He knows better now. <laughs> well, okay. Let's, at least before we leave this, think a little bit what it would be like to live in that kind of world. In that kind of world, my friends, there is no such thing as a mind. Not really. The mind we talk about is nothing more than a part of your body. It's the way your brain functions. Also, in that kind of world, there's no such thing as a purpose. There's no real conscious purpose. We are simply conditioned to act the way we act. If you just understood all of the things that have contributed to influence you tonight, you would realize that the seat you chose to sit in was the only one you could have chosen. You couldn't have made any other choice because of all of those cause-effect influences in the great, the great vast cosmos machine. Have you seen the TV program Cosmos? That was on some years ago. That's exactly what that's devoted to. Okay, there's no mind, there's no purpose. And if all of that's true, then there's no moral right and wrong. Stop and think about it. If the choice you make is the only one you can make, you can't do wrong. There's no such thing as wrong in that kind of world.
There's just what is. That's all. So in that kind of world, we're merely animals behaving as we've been programmed to behave. Everything that transpires is programmed. But there is no programmer in that world. It's just a machine, a blind, purposeless, personless machine in that kind of world. Now, in that kind of world, there is no freedom. There's no free will. There's no will. Not really. That's what's at stake in the argument about free will, at least for some. Now, the theologians who deny free will don't take that approach that I've just laid out. That's not their approach. Here's the difference. The theologians who deny free will say, yes, we are programmed. But there is a programmer in the theological view. And that programmer is God. He has programmed everything to be the way it is. So in that kind of theological world, once again, the choice you make is the only one you can make. Now what I say to that is this. If the choice I make is the only one I can make, it isn't a choice. At least it doesn't look like a choice to me in that regard. And that's what's at stake when we're talking about free will, and that's why I'm defending it. So let's defend. Now, tonight, I'm not going to try to defend free will against a godless scientism or mechanism, that first view of the world I talked about that's not theological. I do that sometimes in speaking on the subject of creation. Which, by the way, let me just say as I pass by, I am absolutely convinced, friends, that we really need to go back and emphasize the biblical view of creation to our people these days. Because in a secular world, they need to understand what's at stake when we think about God as a creator. But it's not my purpose tonight to defend against a godless view. I want to defend free will tonight against those great theologians who deny it. Among those great theologians are the three men that I mentioned in the title of the book. Martin Luther, 500 years ago this past October, nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg. He led the revolt against the Roman Catholic Church, which had become very, very corrupt in doctrine and in practice. We call the movement that he started the Protestant Reformation. He rediscovered the truth of justification by grace through faith. He emphasized that salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, by the work of Christ alone. He was, folks, I got to tell you, he was a Christian hero, a theological giant. 
We owe him a great deal. And we ought to honor him. And last year was especially a good year to do that, the 500th anniversary. And yet, as great as he was, he wrote a book whose sole purpose was to deny the freedom of the will. John Calvin was also a theological giant. Uh, his name gets put in the mud by us free willers. Uh, but it really doesn't deserve that. Calvin was a great theologian. He, too, ought to be thought of as one of our heroes. He was one of the reformers, following Luther's lead, just a little bit behind him in years. He wrote what is probably the most influential theology book of human origin in all of history, called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And by the way, in 18 more years... 17 now, we'll celebrate the 500th anniversary of the publication of that book. 17 more years, whatever that makes. 2035. His work literally reshaped the theology of the Christian church. And yet, Calvin also wrote a book, a whole book, devoted to the subject of denying the freedom of the will. Interesting. Jonathan Edwards. Now, Edwards is a little different from Luther and Calvin. Came along a little later in history. Edwards is generally regarded as the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. And I really don't suppose there's any reason to argue against that. He certainly was a great theologian. He lived in colonial times in New England. Um, he had a wonderful missionary ministry to the American Indians. Um, his sermons have gone down in history. Perhaps you've read his most famous one entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's such a great piece of work that in American literature today, it's still studied as a great piece of American literature. Although, of course, it was far more than a piece of literature. But Jonathan Edwards wrote a book, a whole book, devoted to the subject of denying the freedom of the will. Now, if these three great theologians denied the freedom of the will, who in the world are we? Hey, who am I to argue against them, to disagree with them? Can heroes like that be wrong? Yes, they can. Anybody can be wrong. The only one who can't be wrong is God Almighty himself. So I would just simply say that we respect and appreciate these three theological giants and others for that matter what they've meant to the cause of Christ, what they've meant to the Christian church, what they've meant to us. But we are not intimidated by them. Like the ancient Bereans in the New Testament who were listening to the greatest theologian that ever lived other than Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul. What did they do? They checked the scriptures to see whether what he said was so or not. We do the same thing. 
with the writings of Luther and Calvin and Edwards. So we evaluate what all theologians, including our own, I accept the fact that you should evaluate what I say. Okay, in the light of the Word of God. So now what I want to do with the rest of my time is to introduce you to the two main, not all of their objections, but the two main objections of these three great theologians to the doctrine of the freedom of the will. Um, even though there are other objections, if you can deal with these two, you will undercut their whole argument against freedom of the will. These are their two most important objections. And you may find it interesting to notice that two objections are really pretty simple. First of all, they said, God is too great for man to have freedom of the will. That's my way of putting it, but that's what it amounts to. Secondly, they said, human beings are too bad to have freedom of the will. Those are the two main objections that I want us to look at as we go along tonight. <clears throat> so the first reason these men gave for denying freedom of the will was the greatness of God. So let's talk about that a little bit. They insisted that God is sovereign and exercises an all-inclusive providential government over the whole universe by which they meant that everything that happens in it, including human actions, is under the control of an almighty ruler God. He's the only one who's free. Human beings can't possibly be free in a universe absolutely governed by God. That's, that's the objection. Let me give you a quotation from Luther. He said, quote, God works all things in all men, even in the ungodly. For he alone, that is God alone, moves, makes to act, and impels by the motion of his omnipotence all those things which he alone created. They can neither avoid nor alter this movement, but necessarily follow and obey it. End of quote. That's pretty strong, isn't it? By the way, you'll notice that in that statement, maybe you picked up on this. For Luther, the word omnipotence doesn't just mean that God can do anything. It means he does everything that's done. That's what he meant by omnipotence. Now Calvin and Edwards, and I won't take time to go into quotes from them, would agree with, it, with Luther that people only do what God has decreed. Remember my programmer. They only do what God has decreed that they will do. That he's sovereign. He governs everything. He has everything under his control. Everything happens by uh, the, the work of the providential government of God. Now, okay, were these men right? Well, they were certainly right in insisting on the sovereignty of God, weren't they? I think they were. 
And they were right, I believe, in affirming that God's great purpose and plan encompasses everything that transpires in the world. And that his providential government is in control of everything. I think they were right in saying that much. As I'm going to qualify it, you see. But anyway. Now I hope you don't think I've said too much when I said that. So let's take a closer look. What does the sovereignty of God mean? Well, let me mention briefly. We could talk about it a long time, but I'll just mention quickly three things that the sovereignty of God means. Number one, it means that God governs this universe in perfect freedom. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, and this is one of their favorite verses, it's one of my favorites too. Our God is in heaven. He does whatsoever he pleases. In other words, God doesn't answer to anybody but himself. And I say, amen. He doesn't. Number two. God's sovereignty means that he's not under obligation. That is, he doesn't owe anything to any being or even to any idea or concept other than to himself. He's not under obligation to any person or idea other than to himself. So when he does good, for example, he's acting only in accord with his own good character. There's not even a concept of justice that exists outside of God that he is under obligation to be true to. No, no, no. When God is just or good or holy or loving or anything else that God is, he's being true only to himself. He doesn't know you or me, anything else at all. Amen again. Third, what it means for God to be sovereign is that he's in absolute control over everything that transpires in the created world. He rules over all. Everything, including the choices that human beings make, is subject to the limits he's placed on them and contributes to his ultimate purpose for all things. Amen and glory to God. I believe that. That's what we call the all-inclusive providential government of a sovereign God. Now, if any of that bothers you, I want you to think about what it would mean for God to lose control over anything. Have you stopped and think about that? Hey, God can't lose control over anything. If God lost control over anything, he wouldn't be God any longer. So that can't happen. Even the devil is under God's control. He only does what God has incorporated into his plan for this world. 
Now, then, this word may bother you, so let's look at it. What does control mean? What does it mean for God to be in control of everything? Does that mean he does everything that gets done, like Luther said? No, it doesn't mean that. Does that mean he causes everything that happens? No, it doesn't mean that. So think with me a minute. Doesn't mean that God, now we're talking about what it means for God to be in control, all-inclusive providential governmental control of a sovereign God of everything. Does it mean that God, before he created this world, had an all-inclusive plan and purpose that he determined to put in place and bring it to pass? Yes. It means that for God to be in control. So let's put some things with that. What then does that mean, what I just said? Well, it means that even before he created Adam and Eve, he knew that they were going to sin. And he incorporated that into his plan and purpose. He didn't cause it. He didn't do what they did. That would be heresy in my book. But he incorporated it into his plan as a part of his government of the world. It means that he saw, even before he created the world, that all of the human race would, by the sin of Adam and Eve, be fallen and lost. Yes. He determined to provide an atonement for the sin of all of them and offer it to all of them. He saw which ones would take advantage of his provision and which ones would reject his gracious invitation and choose an eternal destiny apart from him. Yes, he saw that. All of it. And incorporated all of that into his all-inclusive, overarching plan and providential government of the world. Yes. Now, how can we reconcile that big thing about God? How can we reconcile that with human free will? Luther and Calvin and Edwards, ultimately, although they wouldn't admit this, of course, they ultimately said we can't reconcile those things with human free will. So they denied human free will in order to infirm that great big overarching thing for God. I believe we can reconcile. I believe that the Bible teaches both the absolute sovereignty of God, the all-inclusive providential government of God over everything in the world, and yet at the same time teaches the free will of human beings. In fact, I think it's fairly easy to reconcile them. Start with this. In his sovereign plan and government, God created us. He, in his sovereignty, decided to create us with freedom of will. 
as persons created in his image. It was his sovereign will that we have free will. That we have wills, in other words, the ability to choose. And wills are a function, as I've said, of persons, of persons specifically made in the image of God. Consequently, now, listen to me as I go along here, and I hope you don't think I'm being heretic. Since he willed for us to choose, either choice we make is a demonstration of the success of his will that we do the choosing. And that leaves him in control, you see, of everything in that regard. That's no challenge to his sovereignty. No choice we make violates his all-inclusive providential government because he willed that we make the choice. So when we choose heaven or hell, we're fulfilling his plan for us to have freedom of the will. Now, we're not fulfilling his desire that the Bible expresses that all men be saved if we choose to go to hell. But we are, choose, we are fulfilling his will that we make the choice, you see, in that regard. By the way, I think this, I think this understanding of things explains some very difficult things in the very best way possible. You see, the real issue, when you boil it down to it, the real issue is how can there be in a universe created by an all-powerful, good God, how can there be evil in that kind of universe? That's the real problem. That's what it all goes down to in the end. And I think this business of God's willing that people have the wills to make the choices for themselves answers that question. Because when God created us, when he created Adam and Eve to begin with and all the rest of us following thereafter, when he created us with wills that could choose either for him or against him, then the possibility for evil came into being. And he didn't cause the evil. He didn't cause anybody to make the choices that they made against him. But that's where the evil originated. Now, you can ask me one more question if you want to. Why did he do that? I don't know. And I, furthermore, I am not the least bit embarrassed by my ignorance. That's the kind of question only God can answer. I'm sure he knows. And maybe, just maybe, he'll help us to know in the sweet by and by. Maybe he won't. I don't know about that. So Luther and Calvin and Edwards were right only so far. They were right to emphasize the greatness of God, his sovereignty, his all-inclusive providential government of the world. They were right to emphasize that. But they were wrong in failing to realize how human choice can fit perfectly into that concept of God. That's the first reason. 